Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory, on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Megan Linton, the host of the amazing podcast, Invisible Institutions, and also a fellow traveler on the Harbinger Media Network. Megan, uh, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. So, okay, you and I are definitely both podcasters, uh, but I would place your work on a storytelling and audio quality and journalism level at a much higher level than mine. Uh, I, I really, I really like uh, Invisible Institutions. I think it's incredible stuff, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you here, but it's 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 really in the vein of stuff that like. I would hear on the CBC or This American Life, like the quality is incredible for, especially compared to, you know, a humble little interview show like what I do. <laughs> that means so much. I feel like um, spent many hours constructing a tiny sound booth in my apartment. So I'm glad that the sound quality paid off and my the sound producer I work with, Helena Crobath, is just outstanding. So Thank you so much. And the reason uh, we're having you on today is not only because you're a podcaster, not only because you're also you're on the Harbinger Media Network, and I think you produce stuff that people should listen to, but you've told an incredibly emotionally affecting and meaningful story that I think people who listen to this podcast need to hear. And so, like, just a heads up for you folks, like, this podcast is literally just, like, a 10, 15-minute interview with Megan, and then we get into the real star of the show, which is the fifth episode in her first season, hopefully first season, of Invisible Institutions, which is Megan's podcast. But but let's let's talk about it. So let's talk about this episode. I think people have maybe heard, uh, people who listen to this podcast have maybe heard of the Michener Center or of, you know, Nellie McClung's fondness for eugenics or even maybe the government apology for forced sterilizations. But what your podcast, the podcast that we're going to play later, really does well is bring it all back to kind of the original evil, the original sin, right? The confinement and institutionalization of people who are considered intellectually disabled, you know, by the state, right? Yeah, I am so glad that you got to that point because that is really what we're trying to expose with this podcast is that ongoing practice of confinement and of institutionalization of people given the label of intellectual disability. And so why why do you tell these stories of these places and why is ending the practice of institutionalization so important to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think using the places and using the institutions is really important because it really shows the way that the state has transformed and rationalized confinement in very different ways over the past 150 years. And so the first episode starts at the Rideau Regional Center in Ottawa, and then we head to the Manitoba Developmental Center in Portage La Prairie. And then this episode is focused on the Michener Center. And so all of these institutions have changed faces and names really significantly, but this practice is, continues to be ongoing. And so I think tracing back the really long history um, to the present day is really important to show 
the continuity about how even if the justification for confinement has changed, it's still the very same practice and the same belief um, driving this, which is the belief that disabled people should be confined at the lowest cost possible in order to generate profits for the state. Um, and so ending institutionalization and like telling these stories of these places for me is really important as a disabled person. I have my own intimate interactions with the institutional system. And I think once you leave, you it, it never leaves you because these spaces are horrific um, and allow for so much violence that I think people on the outside really don't understand and don't see. And so as a disabled person, this is my community on the inside um, and a community that continues to be subject to some of the worst harms like we have seen through COVID-19 um, and through the long-term care crisis. I mean, it just I, I have to break in, too, because there was a, th something that had come into my mind, right, which is that, like, you know, I consider myself a, you know, a prison abolitionist, a, a police abolitionist, but I had never really put... Um, until I started listening to your podcast, I never really considered, you know, these institutions as part of that kind of complex. Yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful for the work of Liat Ben-Mosh, who's a prison abolitionist and disability justice scholar um, who who's made these connections. And I think like it's been so important to me to interweave these together. And like, I think I was so glad that you actually had James on last week talking about police unions um, and his article about carceral unionism is really important because, you know, on the left, we kind of only hear about these conversations from labor, from labor that like justifies and seeks to expand these sites of institutionalization. Um, and so like, it's, it's so important to see how abolition ties together with all of these spaces and is the, the real framework that we need to understand like the problems of long-term care, the problems of disability confinement. Um, yeah. And that's really like what's central for me as, as also an abolitionist and working in alignment with, the, with disability justice movements. It, it helps so much to bring this framework together um, and to cover things like what you folks cover, like the drug crisis and the expansion of like, treatment facilities and the expansion of prisons, like they're all so intimately tied together. Yeah. And, and you brought it up. We may as well expand on it. Like, you know, I was dimly aware of the Michener Center before I listened to your podcast. You obviously go into far more detail. I know far more about it now than I did before. But my awareness of the Michener Center mostly came about because of like a campaign by organized labor uh, to save the institution and to keep it open and to keep those workers employed now and keep, keep those workers employed there. Uh, you know, like <laughs> what should people who listen to this podcast know about the Missioner Center? And what are they going to learn kind of when they listen to this podcast? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important that like, you, you point out exactly what, what I was going to say, which is that, like, we really need to reconsider how labor unions, and specifically in this case, the AUP, have dominated this conversation. And why have they dominated this conversation? Why aren't we listening to the people who these institutions are incarcerating? Um, and so that's like, that's what this podcast does, is it listens to the people who survived these institutions 
And the people who survived these institutions resoundingly want these places burned down. Like that is the exact language that they hope for. Um, and I think it's like what we need to pursue. And so, I mean, the Michener Center started many, many, many years ago. And it's actually kind of funny. I was trying for so long to figure out if it was still operational because it's not really there's not really readily available information. And how I actually confirmed how many people lived there and what was kind of going on there right now was through a union grievance where it showed that there's like a lot of, lot of, lot of people living and working there. And so like before the Michener Center had this name, it had many different names and forms. And for a very long time, it was the site of a statewide eugenics campaign that sexually sterilized over or roughly around 3,000 people. Through the 1990s um, and to this day, people have fought against the ongoing use of the Michener Center. They've fought against the wide-scale use of group homes and any sites of disability confinement across Canada. And like Alberta and Manitoba have really um, fought off those narratives and and sought to like really rehabilitate the image of Michener Center. And I think like the union campaigns to keep it open through the 2010s were really, really important to show just how willing we are to expand these sites to normalize a place where disabled people were sent to be eliminated, to face sterilization and to be removed from society. And they can never be divorced from that because it's still operating as the same function. It's still operating as an institution used to um, care for disabled people at the lowest cost possible by the state. Um, And the working conditions continue to be incredibly poor. But beyond that, like, why are we maintaining this? Why are we maintaining this place where so many people died, where so many people were subject to such immense state harm? And I think like, so in 2003, a bolt of lightning struck the Michener Center and they spent millions of dollars, like millions and millions of dollars rehabilitating the building. And, you know, that's just how far we seek to continue disability confinement and how much we continue to invest in this system that like, you know, even the the sky wants to eliminate and burn down. So, I mean, I think God, God himself struck it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think like, I think what people need to know about the Michener Center is that survivors want it burnt down and survivors want it closed. And that's, that's where our opinion should lie. And that's where we should who we should listen to. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I was also grateful for in your podcast is, is getting into how you get to 3,000 or so sexual sterilizations over the course of se- several decades. And it was built on, uh, you know, the campaigns, eugenics campaigns that were championed by, you know, people who are now everywhere in Edmonton. I live in, I live in Edmonton, a, a city with a gajillion famous five memorials, you know, statues, parks, murals, et cetera. Um, and, and you do some digging on the beliefs that Nellie McClung and so many others of her ilk had about eugenics. How did, you know, these people we learn about in social studies class 
you know, justify a program that ended up sterilizing thousands of people without their consent. Yeah, I mean, so the famous five are pretty rife with white supremacist eugenic rhetoric, whether it be about the mass criminalization of drugs, prohibition, deportation of the unfit. And in the case of Alberta and across Canada, their rampant support for sterilization of people um, labeled as disabled people, labeled as what they consider uh, like bad stock. Um, And so... For McClung and Edwards and the famous five, I mean, I think we really need to have a reckoning with who they are and who they are are white supremacists who were set to um, really build a great, white, strong Canada. And so as a result, a big piece of that was the classic um, white supremacist dog whistle of protecting children. And so they really used that to justify this program of eugenics, um, which they thought was a really progressive and liberal idea. Like, of course, they were liberals. Um, And so this was really like the origins was based in this desire to end all breeding, quote unquote, of disabled people. And alongside that, um, the the mass sterilization. And so even though sterilization sterilization was like limited to Alberta and BC, but they really impacted the eugenic and institutional practices across Canada, which regardless of sterilization, were using institutions to remove disabled people from their communities and sexually segregate them. So the Michener Center and all institutions were had male cabins and female cabins who weren't allowed to interact um, and then who went went to great extents to um, sterilize and prohibit from having children. Um, I think it's like important to see also how that changed, how it was liberal until a point when eugenics got a bit too intertwined with the overt Nazism. And then at that point in Alberta, it was taken up by far-right evangelicals, namely Bible Bill, Aberhart. And like, I think it's critical to, to understand there and like in our current conversations about reproductive justice and American reproductive justice causes, like we have our own very intimate and very um, overt history of Christian influence on access to sexuality and access to reproductive justice. And so, I mean, once eugenics became a bit too um, overtly problematic, they really shifted it over to it being um, like a state policy to reduce the costs of disabled people. And this really like operationalized those ideas of useless eaters of what Nazis called disabled people. Um, and like, of course, we know that reproductive justice is directly targeted, um, at people labeled as worse by the state. And so that was, um, that's changed over time, but it's really continued with upholding white supremacy and removing access to sex and reproduction and, um, all of those important things for disabled people and for lots of other people. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, time is a, f- a flat 
circle fucking sometimes, right? Like when you started talking about, oh yeah, we were, we were doing what we were doing to these disabled folks because uh, we were worried about our children. It's like the exact same rhetoric used towards uh, like trans people or, or like the groomer rhetoric that's going around right now. Right. Like it just keeps keeps getting recycled. Exactly. Exactly. It's just fascism remains. (laughs) Well, on that cherry note, no, I really uh, appreciate you coming on. I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to play your podcast uh, right now. Uh, it'll, you'll be, if you're listening to this, it'll be starting shortly. Um, how can people follow along uh, with your work? Uh, you know, I, I assume they can find Invisible Institutions on any uh, podcatcher that you use, but is there any other way that people can follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, so we have two episodes left in the season, and you can follow along on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. And on our website, we have full transcripts available, archival photos, further resources, and a bunch of nerdy policy briefs, which is my jam. Um, And you can follow my writing in Canadian Dimension and Briar Patch. Right now, I'm working with some other amazing disabled organizers on an upcoming Briar Patch Disability Justice special issue. Um, So follow that along. And I'm on Twitter at PinkCaneRedLip. Very sweet. Follow along. Megan does great work. And uh, up next, Invisible Institutions. A note that today's episode includes explicit language, discussions of sex and sexuality, and a warning that this episode will discuss explicit sexualized violence, medical violence, forced sterilization, and eugenics. I subscribe to this thing called Passion Flicks, and they make uh, erotic um, movies for women, and it's all ran by women, and it's all based on romance novels, and I am a romance novel junkie, so... You know, some of the, they're, they're rated on this thing called the barometer of naughtiness. So one day, I was watching one that was rated not safe for work. And I told the nurses, I'm like, I'll go watch this movie. It's not safe for work. Uh, can you close my door, please? And they're like, of course we can do that. And I'm like, cool. And then, uh, I was watching this one movie one time, and there was some kitchen stuff happening on counters and stuff. And the nurse just like walked right in while they're doing the thing on the TV, and I was like, oh, hi. Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions. Access to sexuality 
is an important way to understand the history of institutionalization and its ongoing impacts on the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I was 18 the first time I was in a psych ward. I remember giggling with another patient about the lore of the conjugal room. Did it exist? Did you have to book it? Was it literally just a bed? I asked the nurse. Her face turned bright red. She gave me a lecture about ability to consent. In retrospect, pretty funny. I hadn't consented to being there in the first place, so why was she so concerned about this? Conjugal rooms are rooms, generally in prisons and hospitals, set aside specifically for sexual activity. It turned out that psych ward didn't have a conjugal room. And the look of horror on the nurse's face made it pretty clear that this wasn't a question to ask. But... As I giggled, the wheels started churning. I started out my work in disability researching sexuality policies in these places. The places you don't really have a choice in being there. Places like prisons, like psych wards, like group homes, and like Vicky, long-term care homes. You heard Vicky at the top of the show. She's 30, unwillingly living in a nursing home in Nova Scotia, trying to watch porn in her room. Her access to sex is limited because she lives in an institution. We'll get back to her in a bit. Today, people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities too often are forced into institutions as a result of failures to fund housing and access to supports. Being forced into an institution where you don't have privacy, where you're stuck in a single bed, where you're not allowed to have partners over, is but one way that access to sexuality, reproduction, and intimacy are controlled. And it's one that stretches back. Here's Dr. Alan Martino, a researcher and instructor at the University of Calgary. People in institutions were segregated in multiple ways. Uh, they weren't able to you know, build connections in the community. They weren't able to form relationships and, and have experiences that a lot of people outside of institutions would have. You know, when we look at the history of Canada and other countries, the ways that we have you know, dealt with, in quotes, the sexualities of people with disabilities is quite bleak. There were actually cases of involuntary uh, sterilization in our country, and not only with people with disabilities, but also with indigenous peoples in Canada and other social groups that are marginalized. Now, forcing people into institutions is one way that Canada has used to deal with the sexualities of people with disabilities. This is but one part in Canada's history of eugenics, deeply embedded in settler colonialism. Eugenics 
is the attempt to control the human population, to make it more productive, to improve the stock and manage the population. Eugenics has been implemented in a few interconnected ways. Today, we're really gonna dig into institutionalization and its connection to forced sterilization. Now, the history of eugenics and reproductive injustice have particularly targeted indigenous women and women labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And maybe history is an overstatement. Coerced sterilization of indigenous women has been reported as recent as 2019. And coerced sterilization of labeled people has been reported frequently in the last decade. We have a history of institutionalization, ways of controlling, uh, surveilling the sexualities of people with disabilities. And I think the saddest part is that we continue to see some of those practices still happening. And the nurse just like walk right in while they're doing the thing on the TV. And I was like, oh, hi. Um, and luckily, they were really like funny about it. They're like, oh, what are you watching? You know, and then they stood there. And like we laughed about it because the nurse thought the dude was hot. So she was like, oh, I'm going to stay here for a minute. And, um, you know, we joked about it and we laughed. But that was a little awkward for me. Now, sex is often a taboo subject to talk about. But this is even more so the case for people with disabilities, especially the label of intellectual and developmental disabilities. Because although explicit eugenics policy isn't legislation anymore, it's still apparent in the policies of institutionalization and in our social understanding of disability that asexualizes and infantilizes people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It extends by not having access to supportive decision-making, and instead having decisions made about you. I think about a recent story covered by Kelly Egan for the Ottawa Citizen. Sherry Bratchfield had her wedding all set for December 29th. The venue, the dress, the ring, a man she loved. But the Ontario Guardian stopped her wedding by refusing to allow her to move out of her group home. So today we're gonna talk about sex. And by doing so, we're also gonna talk about some darker things. Eugenics, sexualized violence, and sterilization. Now, across Canada, Provincial policies varied with regards to sterilization and eugenics policy. In places like Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia, there weren't explicit sterilization policies. Instead, eugenics took place through the use of institutions to remove people from their communities 
and sexually segregate them. As one report of the Ontario government reminds us, So keen were the officials that there be no possibility of sex or propagation by these deviants, that upon death men and women were sometimes buried in separate burial grounds. Now, Alberta ran a different kind of terrible. A massive, active eugenics program that operated mainly out of one institution in Red Deer, Alberta. That, like most institutions, has had a few different names over time. The Provincial Training Center, Deer Home Alberta School, and today, the Michener Center. When it opened in 1923, it was a single building with 108 people. By the 1970s, there were more than 2,000 people incarcerated in this massive site of 66 buildings. We're going to hear a bit more about this institution and its place in the history of eugenics in Canada with People First of Canada's The Freedom Tour and Dr. Claudia Malacrida, a professor of sociology and author of several books on disability health, and the body. But the one we're really diving into today is a special hell, institutional life in Alberta's eugenics years. In this book, there's rare interviews with former inmates and workers, institutional documentation, and governmental archives. Claudia Malacrida helped shed light on Alberta's history of institutionalization and eugenics. As a researcher, she has focused on historical eugenics, but also its connection to present-day restrictions on disabled people's sexuality and reproduction. Here she is. BC's history of sterile involuntary sterilization was much more covert than in Alberta. Nellie McClung was the first judge in Alberta, and she had the portfolio of family uh, services. And these women did, they were liberal, uh, and they were progressivists, and they did believe in the improvement of the human race. And they lobbied hard for um, legislature that would protect children, which often meant removing them from their homes, and for legislature to improve human stock. So maybe you've heard of Nellie McClung, but let's hear from her. Here's what she had to say in her lobbying for the sterilization of children. To bring children into the world suffering from to the bring handicaps children into the world suffering from the handicaps caused by ignorance, poverty, or criminality of the parents is an appalling crime against the innocent and hopeless, and yet one about which practically nothing is said. Marriage, homemaking, and the rearing of children are left entirely to chance. And so it is no wonder that humanity produces so many specimens who, if they were silk stockings or boots, would be marked seconds. 
So you can hear there just how fully of a eugenicist Nellie McClung was, advocating for sterilization, advocating that disabled children are burdensome and broken. McClung and her famous five kindred advocated for a kind of feminism that was rooted entirely in white supremacy. And she's not the only famous Canadian part of this. Here's Dr. Malacrita. A lot of these social reformers were, um, as we know, like Tommy Douglas, you know, who was pro-eugenic, were racist, who were worried about the influx of immigrants who were overbreeding and the middle classes who were ceasing to produce at those same rates. Just freak people out. Yeah. That Tommy Douglas. I mean, to be fair, his master's thesis was titled The Problems of the Subnormal Family. Okay, back to Claudia. So there was a lot of lobbying in the teens and 20s. And finally, in 1927, um, there was a bill put forward, the, uh, the Sexual Sterilization Act, Um, There were protests against it, but uh, what it essentially did was it um, enticed people to voluntarily undergo sexual sterilization. It was passed really uh, quickly without a lot of debate in March of 1928. And I think that social reformers really thought there'd be a bit of a, you know, a a charge to try and uh, get yourself sterilized because it would give you a better life, blah, blah, blah. Here's some newspaper articles from Alberta at the time, collected by Dr. Rob Wilson for the Eugenics Archives. Link, obviously, in the show notes. January 3rd, 1927, in the United Farmers of Alberta. Resolutions for Women's Convention convention deal deal with important issues. Feeble-minded. For UFWA Convention, segregation or sexual sterilization? Sterilize the feeble-minded. And these eugenicists thought in earnest that people would line up to get sterilized. People did not, you know, storm the gates to get sterilized. And so um, with uh, with the voting in of the Social Credit Party, which was very socially and religiously conservative, an amendment to the act was was proposed by Dr. W.W. W. Cross, the Minister of Health, and it passed. So, a bit of a background on who this fresh social credit government was. Now, at the time, Alberta was led by radio evangelist Bible Bill Aberhart. This is the Calgary Prophetic Bible Institute broadcasting the regular... Sunday afternoon program over Canadian station CFCM, the voice of the prairies. Known for his Bible Belt's fundamentalism, anti-Semitism, and creating an explicitly anti-science environment. It is claimed that we are mixing religion and politics. There is no sphere of our life in which religion does not play its very important part. The Social Credit Party was an explicitly Christian, anti-communist party committed to social credit theory. As a matter of fact, we've had rather more to say about economics than about politics. An 
anti-Semitic monetary theory that the folks at Alberta Advantage do a much better job of explaining. So in this environment, in 1935, major amendments were made to the act. It, it produced the Alberta Eugenics Board, who in the act became exempt from any civil action by individuals taking part in these surgical operations. So it basically legislated their impunity. Now we're going to get into some nitty-gritty, behind-the-scenes logistics of these powerful bureaucrats who are making decisions around life, death, and ableist violence. Things called guidance clinics were brought into being, and these were groups of doctors, nurses, health, public health nurses, social workers, and often um, family physicians or church leaders. They used to do like a little tour around the province once or twice a year and visit, you know, your local health clinic or your local you know, family doctor, and find out who was unfit, uh, who were often brought to the attention of, of officials who then would uh, work hard to convince people to surrender children. Once those kids were in the system, and especially once they were institutionalized, it became very difficult for them to avoid sterilization because of the ways that, um, that the eugenics board operated. Members of the eugenics board were also, they included people like the superintendent of Michener Center, what was originally called the Alberta Training Hospital or Alberta School Hospital um, at, in Red Deer. So there was a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a conflict of interest, I suppose you could really say. Other members of the eugenics board included people from other institutions across the province. And a case would come before the board for uh, for a hearing. And of the over 5,000 cases heard, there were really less than 100 that resulted in a negative decision. It was pretty much an inevitability that you would be uh, approved for sterilization. Now, that didn't mean that you would actually necessarily be sterilized, but it, uh, it increased the likelihood particularly if you had a consent form that signed over the right to make decisions about health to the institution itself, which is something that did happen regularly at Michener. Now, the reason that this happened regularly at the Michener Center was that these really were children, totally isolated from their families and potential advocates. When children came into Michener Center, their parents were advised not to um, come and visit for the first year. It would impede any progress that the institution was going to make on their training. So, you know, the kids who came into Michener Center were, were very young and often uh, not informed of what it was that was happening to them. I mean, some of the stories that people told uh, were almost cinematic. You know, it's like I'm I'm out in my dust bowl farmhouse and a black car comes up the the roadway and uh, out steps a lady with a and my mom comes out of the house with a suitcase and I get in the car and I never saw my family again. This severed relationship between communities had a really profound impact 
not only on the institutionalized person, but also their family and their entire community. Here's Teta, a survivor of the Michener Center and advocate for deinstitutionalization. I was in uh, Michener Center in Red Deer for 20 years. At the age of 15, that's when I left my family completely. Um, I went to Michener Center when I was 15 years old, but I'll never forget. There was this great big brick building, and that's when I said goodbye to my family for a whole year. We could not see family for a whole year. I was really scared, but I did what they wanted, and I worked really hard. The family isolation that Teta shares is devastating. And it's not isolated from the experience of eugenics. In fact, Dr. Malacrita links them together. One of the problems with Michener Center, and I, I, I refer to it as a form of passive eugenics, um, was that it did separate people from their communities. So there's sort of ripples of trauma that have come out of, out of these experiences. These severed relationships expedited and permitted the violence against these children as they did not have allies outside to expose the institution and make it accountable for its actions. Because, of course, the institution nor the province were accountable for such violence. There was, um, there are many, many instances in the record of what are called uh, extraordinary events or unusual events, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and sometimes death, um, escapes that ended in death. From the archives that Dr. Malacrida excavated. X received, X a received a stab wound behind right ear, approximately one inch in length. Treated with cold compress and application of buttery bandage. Clinical noted, stitches given. Returned from doctor, 10.30 hour. Other memos included procedures on the appropriate use of RCMP search dogs, the composition of internal search and rescue teams, the proper chain of command for reporting escapes, and the procedures for billing various authorities for costs relating to these searches. We've heard this time and time again. These conditions were punishing, traumatizing, earth-shattering. So much violence. Now, I'm going to introduce you to some sisters in Alberta, Jude and Bonnie. My name's Bonnie Picard, and I'm Judy's youngest, younger sisters. Judy has um, two other sisters. Judy's the oldest in our family. Jude doesn't use words to communicate, so the doctors kept recommending to my mom, pushing my mom to put her into Michener Center. And so my mom um, did not want that to happen, but finally she did 
give in to the doctors and she put Judy into Michener Centre. It was really built up for our family that it was be a nice place and then when it, in reality, it turned out to be one of the biggest nightmares of her life. You know, my sister lived with 65 other people in her bedroom in that, in Michener and the door was locked from the outside. So there was lots of awful things that happened in those rooms at night time when, um, when she was there. I think it's important to put those awful things that happened at nighttime alongside the things that happened in broad daylight. Forced sterilization. How it operated for people who lived in Michener was they would kind of hit puberty and it was roped that you would go before the board and uh, if you didn't have somebody who could advocate for you, who, if you didn't have somebody who had to provide an individual rather than a blanket permission, you'd go. So uh, 5,500 cases, uh, 28 and, and change cases were actually um, uh, implemented with uh, involuntary sterilization. And most of those did come from places like Michener Center, where it was children who were intellectually disabled and without, uh, without resources in the, in the community. Here's Bonnie again, talking about the medical violence that Jude experienced. So when Jude was, uh, 24 they pulled all her teeth when when she was 17 um they they gave her a hysterectomy they they uh sterilized her at the age of 17. um they ha had said that well they didn't even tell us what that she actually had that we just read that in a report that that had happened that she had been sterilized but um there was lots of reasons that we'd heard about afterwards so that was a terrible, terrible thing that happened to her. Well, I think that the reason that they sterilized her was because there was a lot of sexual abuse happening in this institution by staff. To this day, Jude um, really still suffers very much emotionally from the things that happened to her in Michener Center. Um, she doesn't sleep at night. She just cannot sleep at night. She's very afraid of the dark. She can go three to four nights without sleeping. Now, I want to make clear the horror of Jude's story. Jude was sterilized at the age of 17 because of repeated instances of sexual abuse happening in the institution by staff. Her sterilization and medical abuse was used to cover the biggest nightmares. And this legislated impunity wasn't that long ago. The Sexual Sterilization Act was open for 50 years, until 1972, when the progressive conservative Peter Lougheed government explained that the government feels very, very strongly that the bill is offensive and at odds with the proposed Alberta Bill of Rights. 
And for some, the violences of the Michener Center haunted them for lifetimes across possible generations. She's constantly, I think, tormented by the thoughts of Michener now. Still, even if you mention the word Michener Center to her, she's upset for at least two days afterwards. She just is so, it has taken such an emotional toll on her. Um, I think that, you know, I always say her Down syndrome is not Jude's problem. She has these emotional problems that she deals with on a constant basis and still deals with those every day, the, the, uh, the horror of what happened to her in Michener Center. She's had her nose broken, she's had her knee um, kicked out from, like her knee was dislocated, somebody kicked it. Um, lots of those kind of things have happened to her in Michener Center. She had lots of abuse. They're very unsafe places. I think that people are harmed. There's lots of abuse and neglect that still happens in those facilities. It was, it was just something you wouldn't do to your animals. It was just the treatment was unbelievable. These were places that were supposed to provide care. But people, children, were subject to torture, to solitary confinement, abuse, sensory deprivation, isolation. Here's Dr. Malakrita again. These people came to be profoundly damaged by the institution so that when Michener Center was opened as the training school, it was the intention that children would be returned to society by their 18th birthday, but of course they were incapable thereof. So in the mid forties, Michener Center expanded its facility and added another 2000 adult beds. And so you have a population of children who come in and basically cradle to grave without hope, uh, live these lives. So it was a place from the people with whom I, I spoke, um, Nobody uh, wanted to go back. Very, very few positive memories and um, a lot of emotion in, in the interviews, uh, you know, uh, reliving some of those experiences. I want to tell you about one more story, one that you should definitely read. Leilani Moore was institutionalized into the Michener Center as a child. When she was 14, the center told her she was having her appendix taken out. They lied to her. Years later, Leilani left the institution and got married. She was trying to become a mother when she found out that she was irreversibly sterilized. She was one of the 2,834 people in the Alberta Eugenics Program, who were legally subject to sexual sterilization surgery. In 1996, Leilani sued the province of Alberta and won, inspiring other survivors to take the government of Alberta to court for its many violences of institutionalization and sterilization. But winning the lawsuit would not return her access to reproduction and motherhood. 
You can read and hear more about Leilani's story through the National Film Board film, The Sterilization of Leilani Moore, and in her book, A Whisper Past, Childless After the Eugenic Sterilization in Alberta. In 1999, after Leilani Moore won her case against the government, the Premier of Alberta apologized, airing that they extend regrets for the actions of another government in another period of time. It's unfortunate. I mean, I won't say it's criminal. It was the law, but it was a bad law. That's a half apology. And that apology didn't end the impacts of eugenics in Canada. Here's Claudia Malacrida once more. I want to say that we know the numbers of people who uh, came under the knife as part of the Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act, but I believe strongly this is a tip of the iceberg. I think that Indigenous children had these things happen to them in Indian hospitals, as did adult women particularly. We are conscious of these um, these events occurring today, also in parallel kinds of forms between people with disabilities, profound physical disabilities and intellectual disabilities primarily, and Indigenous people, where hospitalization can be a very dangerous uh, event, where uh, consent is very loosely given. Although explicit eugenics policy isn't legislation anymore, it's still apparent in the policies of institutionalization. I, I think for kids, children and young adults or dependents who have intellectual disability, although it's putatively impossible to involuntarily sterilize someone, active eugenics persist uh, in the form of uh, decisions that are made around hygiene or she can't manage her periods, or that these relationships would be really dangerous. And I mean, I would argue that making somebody sterile can be a really good smokescreen for being a victim of sexual abuse for people with, with profound disabilities. Sterilization is a practicality. Sterilization is a smokescreen. And sterilization is an ongoing reality in Canada. Part of the living histories of eugenics policies and in our social understanding of disability that asexualizes and infantilizes people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Many of the old buildings of the Michener Center were blown up, but on the grounds of the Michener Center, group homes for labeled people were built and remain. The impacts of eugenics, of sterilization, echoing off their walls. And not too far away, a long-term care home in Red Deer boasts about having a wing just for young people. Shoshana and I spoke in November, 2020. I am an indigenous disabled woman from Winnipeg. I live at Riverview Health Center. 
I don't feel my needs are best suited living in a 388 bed facility. I wish that I could live in the community, like where my friends and family can come freely and visit me whenever they want. And if like my husband wants to spend the night, there's just like space to be able to do that. Let's go back to Vicky once more to hear about how her long-term care wing impacted her love life. Uh, a lot, I know. Um, my friends tell me not to be, but when they come over my house, I'm embarrassed of where I live and I'm ashamed. You know, those are things I worry about. Privacy, another thing I worry about, depending on who's on. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit more about the the privacy problem? Uh, well... You know, when somebody's door, like when you are in somebody's house, when you go to someone's house, you knock on their door and they'd be like, hello, can I come in, please? And they, they, some of them are just not all of them, but some of them don't respect that. And they, because as far as I'm concerned, this room is my house. And if you are going to come into my house, you have to knock, you know? Um, so they don't always do that depending on the person and it can be very awkward for me, especially like I said, if I'm either in a meeting or, you know, girls got needs. So occasionally I watch erotic movies and, uh, that can be awkward. So people ask me what we can do, how we can move beyond eugenics, and how can we support the sexual lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities? Well, I think ending institutionalization is a really great place to start. Robust movements towards reproductive justice must include people with disabilities and institutionalized people. Because it's about more than sex. But also, sex is great. Invisible Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio recording also by me, with production assistance by Kendall David. This episode was advised by the Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization, with additional audio narration by Helena Grobath and Alex Johnston. Audio post-production and sound design were by Helena Grobath, and our theme music was composed by Bara Ladek. Special thanks to Claudia Malacrida, Alan Martino, Vicky Levesque, Shoshana Forrester-Smith, Erica Dick, and the Eugenic Archives. To the wonderful creators and narrators of the Freedom Tour, and an extra special thanks to Leilani Moore, institutional survivors, researchers, and self-advocates. Talk soon.